The title of today's message is Faith Under Fire, and this passage is, a, is sort of a continuation, not sort of, it's a, a continuation of what Peter shared in verses 3, 4, and 5 last week. We looked at it with regards to our salvation, how precious, how beautiful this, this new birth is in the living hope that we have in Christ, in the inheritance that will not fade away or be corrupted, that awaits for us at Christ's return. Paul really, or Peter, I keep doing this, Peter really gives a, a, a three-verse snapshot of the beauty of our redemption and our, our regeneration, our new birth in Christ. And those three verses are precious. And so on the heels of that, remember we said this is one big run-on sentence, verses 3 through 12 in the original Greek. The translators have broken it up so it's more readable uh, for English readers. But this is one big run-on sentence that Peter just kind of blurted out here at the beginning of his letter. And so he starts in verse 6. He says, you rejoice in this. What is this? Well, he's looking back to the, probably the previous verse. It could be all of verses 3, 4, and 5, but most likely it's verse 5 where he's saying, uh, this salvation will be revealed at the last time, and we're, we're being guarded by God's power. And he says, you rejoice in that. You're excited about that. You're passionate about that. It brings you great comfort. He says, you rejoice in this, verse 6, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As a boy, I don't know if this is normal or not, but as a boy, I was always fascinated by fire growing up. Fire is, fire's cool. I don't know, I think it's, I think it's a guy thing, but uh, fire is, is both beautiful and it's, it, it's dangerous. It can be tremendously beneficial and it can be tremendously destructive. Uh, I, I remember we, growing up, we lived out in the country and uh, we burned our trash. We, we'd never, I had never seen a garbage truck. Like, uh, we just, they didn't come out where we lived, so we, we burned everything. And uh, stuff that wouldn't burn, we dumped in the garden. And, uh, and so we discovered that, like, um, uh, it was actually kind of a cool chore to get assigned if you had to go take out the trash, because taking out the trash mean, meant also setting it on fire. And we're like, wait a minute, this is a chore? I get to start a fire? Like, I felt like there was a secret, like my parents didn't know about. They were like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I've got to go do chores right now. And so we got this, this fire going. We had a little grate that went over top of this 55-gallon drum and kept the debris from floating in the neighbor's yard. We discovered they weren't big fans of that. And, and uh what we discovered is that that, uh, that grate was, well, it was a grill. I mean, it was, you could put things on it and have fun, like, watching things cook. And so, you know, anything from, like, a, a, a piece of dead wood to, uh, to rummaging around through old broken toys. Like, we used to take G.I. Joe's, old broken G.I. Joe's, and try to meld them together and make, like, cyborg or, like, like you know, uh, just these weird, weird hybrid things. Uh, we had so much fun. Um, playing at that burn barrel, hours and hours of fun, breathing in those carcinogens and all kinds of things. And, uh, 
And, you know, there are a lot of ways in which fire can be positive. You know, I mean, this is the time of year, the weather's cooling down now, and, and uh, you get a good campfire going, and it can just be like this place of comfort and great fellowship and friendship uh, as you warm yourself by the fire. Uh, it can also be destructive. I remember when I was a teenager, we had a small house fire. It, it wasn't, it didn't, you know, destroy our entire house, but it was big enough that we had to move out for a number of weeks. I, I can't even remember, but I feel like it was six or eight weeks that we had to go live in an apartment while our house was being repaired. This, this fire had a potential to be destructive, but fire also has the potential to do great things, to be tremendously positive. And for the Christians here, Peter says, you are facing a fire. And in, in this case, he's looking at this fire as essential, as necessary, as something that was going to make them stronger in their faith. We said that one of the key themes of this book is, is how, how to walk through and handle suffering, how to handle and live as aliens in a, in a world that is increasingly ostracizing believers. These Christians in the first century understood this very clearly, and we're seeing it more and more in our own culture. We see here in these verses that Peter is capturing the glory of the Christian life, that suffering and glory are bound together in ways that we cannot, we cannot separate them and that are quite confounding. In fact, verse 11, which we'll look at next week, he speaks of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is the great mystery of suffering, of trials, of being in the furnace. Because our great forerunner, our great pioneer, our Savior Jesus Christ came to glory through suffering, we will, we will discover that our experience will be no different. As his servants, we are not above our master. And so Peter wants these believers right at the outset of this letter to understand what God's doing in the midst of their suffering. And the first thing that we want to see here is the sorrows of suffering. Look at verse 6. He says, you rejoice in this. Again, remember looking back there in verse 5, or verse, yeah, verse five he says, you're rejoicing because of this salvation that will be revealed. He says, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Peter wants them to know that, that, uh, that there's something going on in the midst of their trials, their suffering. Now, this, this Greek word that's translated trials is a common word throughout the New Testament. It's used over and over and over again. And it's more than just bad stuff happening, hard stuff happening to us. It, but it, 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 even in the word itself, it creates a picture of there's a testing, there's a trying, there's something that God is doing, something that's at work to test the quality of the thing being tried, of the thing being tested. And so already even in the, in the definition of the word itself, we begin to get a glimpse of the purpose of God in suffering. But there are a few things I want to say about these trials that I think verse 6 um, really brings to the forefront. He says, he mentions various trials. He uses this word various to modify the word trials. The, 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 the trials that we experience are of a variety. Now, I, I wondered as I was studying this, and I spent some time looking at different commentators, is Peter, as he talks about trials and suffering throughout this book, is he only talking about the things that happen to us as a result of walking with Jesus? 
Because that would be a very narrow subset of trial. And not necessarily narrow for them. I mean, that was their life, right? That's what they were experiencing. That's what they were living. But I wondered, if is, is that what Peter has in mind, is only suffering that's like persecution for your faith? Now, that's definitely what he's addressing here. But this word various reminds us that, that Peter's got even a wider scope. He's talking about those things in your life that God allows that are really, really hard. It's not just being persecuted for our faith, although that's going to be at the forefront of this entire book. But it's the trials that come as a result of living life in a fallen world. In fact, this word various, it means diversified or manifold. It's even been used in other uh, non-biblical literature to talk about many colored. Or, he says you, you have these, these trials and they take on different shades, different hues, different colors at different times. They, they arise from different places. They look like different. Sometimes they involve people. Sometimes it's internal. Sometimes it's sinful temptation. It, they, they can look different, but at the end of the day, God is allowing them for a purpose. These trials are various. The second thing we see in verse 6 is that these trials bring genuine grief. These trials bring genuine grief. He says, very simply, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. It's interesting that he included that word. He could have just said you suffer from various trials. But he said you suffer grief. This is a word that... It's what you think it is. It captures emotion. It's it's becoming sad, sorrowful, distressed. You've been overwhelmed with sadness because of the trials that you've experienced. Now, I don't know about you, but for a lot of my Christian life, trials and difficulties, I've I've often looked looked at in a very robotic way. You see, I can look at propositional truth and I can say, God is doing something in the midst of this hardship. Almost in a detached way, say, okay, I'm going to trust God. God, do your thing. We're going to get through it. We'll be fine. But Peter here stops to acknowledge, this is really hard for you guys. You're grieved. He doesn't look at them and say, good Gracious, would you guys just get it together? God's at work. Can't you trust God? Can't you believe that he's doing something that you can't see? I mean, that would be true, and that's actually what he's going to talk about here. But he stops for a beat and says, I see what you're going through, and I can't imagine how this is affecting you. You know, my brothers and sisters, as we talk about what God's at at work doing, and as we pray about his work in our hearts during difficult times, during persecution, during suffering. We need to acknowledge that God understands that these things are hard. These things cause us grief, genuine tears. For the longest time, I could never understand John chapter 11. As Jesus, he had a chance to save Lazarus, and he chose to wait and come to Mary and Martha into their home after Lazarus had already died. And Martha and Mary were angry with Jesus. If you would have been here, our brother would still be alive. And the whole time I'm reading, I I come to John 11.35, the shortest verse in the English Bible. It tells us that Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and it says, Jesus wept. And I could not understand that for the longest time because I thought, 
come on, Jesus, you know what you're about to do. We all know the story. He's going to speak, call Lazarus out, and Lazarus is going to walk out a living man. Why did Jesus cry? Why is Jesus at the grave shedding tears when he knows he's about ready to do one of the most amazing miracles of his ministry? Because Jesus was entering into the grief of those two sisters. Jesus was experiencing the grief himself of a friend who had breathed his last, who had experienced the curse firsthand. Our God enters into our grief. He knows our sorrows. As we, as we, as we listen to the Word of God, and as we come to believe that God's at work in our trials, know that at the same time, our God, He sees our sorrow. Psalm, the Psalms tell us that He catches our tears in a bottle. Remember that. It's okay. Guys, it's okay to cry. It's okay to weep. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to experience the emotions that God created us to experience. The Bible again and again shows that Christians don't just experience pain and suffering and grief. They are actually affected by it. They are grieved by it. They're troubled by it. May we not only be willing to enter into that grief ourselves, but to walk alongside those who are grieving and hurting. That we may weep with those who weep. We may take the extra time to sit with someone who is hurting, even not saying anything, just being there, being present. May we not run from grief, our own or others. And just briefly here, verse 6 tells us these trials were necessary. We're going to talk more about that here in just a moment. He says, um, if for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. These are things that we've got to trust God for. We may not know why it's necessary. We may not know and understand why God says, you need this right now. I still remember one of the hardest, oh my word, one of the... the Worst moments is one of those worst phone calls you can get as a parent. Uh, I was in a class. Jaden was, I don't know, a little over a year maybe. And uh, Elisa calls me and said, hey, I'm on my way to the emergency room. Uh, Jaden um, needs stitches. And, you know, of course, like, you don't know how big it is. You can't see it. And you're thinking, like, I don't know how serious this is and how severe it is. We, I meet her there. And and he'd cut his, cut his finger to the bone. It was a pretty, pretty nasty gash. It wasn't life-threatening, but he was a wreck, and she was a wreck. And she's like, uh, the doctor says, hey, we need one of you guys to hold him down while we stitch us. And she's like, uh, tag, you're it. There's no way. And I'll tell you, that is one of the worst things when you've got a little child, and he, he sees you there as his dad, and you're holding him down, and he's experiencing this tremendous pain and you can't, you can't explain to him why the, the doctor needs to do this to his finger. Like, th this pain is necessary for you to get better. Like, the kids our ages, you know, where they're at now, we can have that conversation. We can explain those things. But when you've got a little infant 
who's just screaming and looking at you with pleading eyes saying, make this stop with his eyes. And you're like, you need this. My brothers and sisters, that's what trials are. That's what suffering is. Our God has no delight in seeing his children squirm and, and writhe in unnecessary pain, but he's up there looking from heaven. No, more than that, he's beside us saying, you need this, my child. You don't understand it right now. You don't get it. I can't, even if I tried to explain it to you, you probably wouldn't understand it, but you need this right now. This is part of the reason we talked about faith those few weeks back, because there is so much about suffering and trials that require us trusting God in His loving, tender heart, even if we can't figure out what in the world's going on. He says, fourthly, that these trials are temporary. These trials are temporary. If necessary, you, uh, he says, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Um, Peter, again, wasn't trying to minimize these things, but he, he wanted them to know that, listen, in light of eternity, these are just but a blip on the radar screen. Paul speaks, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks of our light and momentary affliction as producing within us a far greater weight of glory. And if, you, if you read the whole book of 2 Corinthians, it's the only place where Paul really is like, like sort of just kind of shows all of his cards. He's like, listen, Corinthians, this is what I've done for you. This is what I've gone through for you. And in chapter 11, he just lists all of these ways in which he's suffered, persecution, beatings, getting stoned, on and on and on he goes. And then the very last one on the list, he's like, and on top of all this, caring for all the churches. And you're like, Paul, you're talking about light and momentary affliction? Like, it sounds like your entire life with Jesus was affliction. But Paul could call it light and momentary because he looked at it in light of eternity. And he saw where it fit, fit on the whole, the, the whole panorama of, of life and eternity. He's like, this is just, this is just a small Small thing. This is a light and momentary affliction. Whatever it is that we're going to face, even if it lasts the rest of our lives, what Peter says here can be true. It's even for a short time. Light of eternity. God's at work doing something that will pale in comparison to the glories that will be revealed. I want to say something for a few moments about God's purpose in our suffering. That's the Second point here, God's purpose in our suffering. He tells us in this amazing verse, verse 7, he, gives us a, he starts off with a purpose phrase, so that, verse 6 told us we've been suffering grief and various trials, verse 7 says, so that, here's the reason why, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, that may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has a goal in the midst of our suffering, and it's to bring about a refined faith. It's to bring about a faith that becomes strengthened, becomes glorious. Some of your translations may render this a little bit differently. Mine here says the proven character of your faith. Uh, another says the tested genuineness of your faith. God is in the process of strengthening and refining and, and making glorious our faith and our trust in Him. 
he uses this picture to return back to the, the picture of fire. He uses this picture of the way that the fire refines gold, refines precious metals. I don't understand how all of this works, but I, I, I read enough to know that exposing precious metals to the smelting process removes the extra junk. It removes the impurities and the, the slag, if that's the right word, and, uh, and, and makes the, the metal more pure, stronger, more beautiful because of the refining process. Peter here is saying that our God is committed to doing that in our lives. What, what refiners will do to gold, God does to us and to our faith. To bring about a deeper, stronger, more, more, more faithful trust in Him. Some of you may be familiar with the words of this hymn. It's written by John Rippon, who had been the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London prior to Charles Spurgeon. And he writes this, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God longs to see our faith strengthened. If you're like me, you may wonder sometimes, like, can't, can't this do right here where we're at? Can't we just stay right here and kind of coast on through to heaven uh, and kind of do without the whole fire and refining process? You see, God's committed not to let us remain the same. And see, He knows that if, okay, if, if living free from sin in heaven is our ultimate aim, and we know that that's the very best and most glorious outcome, to no longer be un unencumbered by sin, He says what we're going to do is get a head start on that here on earth. If we know that living without sin is the most glorious way to live, he says, listen, I want you to get as close to heaven as you can here on earth. And that's why I'm bringing the refining process. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, powerfully captured just some profound theology in two sentences. He says, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that God withholds. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. Do you believe that? Do you trust God with that? I'm not going to lie to you. I have a hard time. I have a hard time trusting God with that sometimes when when I'm certain that I need something, when I'm certain that my life would be better off, our family's life would be better off if I had whatever this was, I pray for it, I trust God for it, and it still has not come, to believe that, <laughs> to believe that he says, it's best for you not to have that, to trust him, to trust his wisdom in that, we come back to faith and trusting the heart of God. Everything is necessary that God sends, and nothing can be necessary that He withholds. There's another purpose mentioned here: it is 
regards to suffering. And that's a glorious goal. Did you notice what he said there in verse 7? The proven character of your faith may result in, the praise, in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's something really interesting. Most commentators agree that that's probably not talking about Jesus' praise and glory and honor. Because the, the subject of the sentence seems to be the proven character of your faith. And, and what maybe, obviously, when we see Jesus face to face, the primary goal, number one, is giving him glory and honor and praise. Revelation captures that in several beautiful, powerful pictures. But what I think also might be a play here, what often we don't think about, is the honor that God is going to bestow on those who have walked faithfully with God. And they've trusted God in the midst of their trials, have suffered great things, and have come forth more, have come forth closer to God, deeper in their faith. And, and I think the text is saying, listen, there's going to be glory and honor and praise. There's going to be rewards for those who have faithfully trusted in Him. The third thing I just want to mention briefly here is that there's an unexpected emotion in all of this. We see God's purpose, but there's something here that happens that, that I still can't fully wrap my mind around. He says in verse 8, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, I, I read that phrase, and so he, he says, okay, you, you haven't seen Jesus. These believers were trusting in him. And they were believing in him, and they loved Jesus, even though they'd never met him. But he says, in the midst of this suffering, he says, you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. So he uses the, a, a verb and a noun there, speaking of joy that is wrapped up in this experience of suffering. Notice that he doesn't say, hey, listen, you're rejoicing now that you were troubled back then, like... Bad stuff happened, it's over now, and you're joyful after the fact. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, you're not rejoicing now because you are troubled, but one day you will rejoice, just right now you're miserable. He says, you're rejoicing now, and you're deeply troubled, and you're grieved by various trials. He holds these things together, and he says, both of these things are happening in your life. Now, this flies against all, all of my logic anyway, all of my natural thinking. To me, the two rise and fall opposite of one another. When things are, are going really well, then, uh, th then I can be joyful. When they go bad, I can't be joyful. But to say, like, trouble is increased and joy is increased boggles my mind. It boggles my mind B because the world tells us we need to do everything we can to just get away from suffering, make the pain stop. That, that's our natural inclination. Let's, let's get it out of our lives. But here he's saying, as, as you experienced suffering, so too were you able to experience great joy. This, this word used for joy here. It's not used by secular Greek writers. It's, it's a word that's employed in the New Testament to speak of spiritual joy, of rejoicing in God or in what He's done. There's a depth to it. It's not rooted in the transient things. It's not rooted in temporal things. It's rooted in God and His character. I love this definition of joy that I read this week. 
a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. As we see the glory of Christ in the midst of suffering, He says your joy can be fanned into full flame. In this context, Peter wants us to know that we can rejoice in our trials because God is in the middle of working out this glorious salvation in our lives. And notice how he defines joy. He says it's inexpressible and glorious. And I think he understands that somebody like me isn't going to understand this because he says it's inexpressible. We can't even put this into words because it doesn't make sense to human reasoning that as suffering increases, our joy in God can increase. That math does not work to the natural man, but it works in God's economy. We try to explain this, people are going to look at us funny. We expect people who have went through the mightiest storms of life to be bitter, not joyful. The Bible teaches that that kind of joy is glorious. I love how Walter Brueggemann writes it. When he says, the riddle and insight of biblical faith is the awareness that only anguish leads to life, only grieving leads to joy, and only embraced endings permit new beginnings. Those who have not cared enough to grieve will not know joy. The glory of the Christian life is that we have a hope that overwhelms the grief. It doesn't eradicate it, but it sweetens it. It overwhelms it. Grief enhances the joy. That's why James can say, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so you can be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James can say, count it all joy when these trials come. God is at work. You don't have to set aside your joy while you grit your teeth to get through the trial and then go back and pick up your joy later. The Bible says that in the midst of that, we can experience joy. I would submit to you that's by faith because we often can't see it. We often can't explain it. When I read the writings of those who have suffered deeply, the Johnny Erickson Tatas, the Elizabeth Elliots, Mark Talbot, and others that have walked through lifelong disabilities, it's in those moments of intensified weakness that they are drawn closest to Jesus and they taste more, they drink more deeply and, and, the, and the presence of Jesus is far sweeter. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 12, where he says, listen, that's why I rejoice in my sufferings because when I am weak, he is strong. That word rejoice in that passage is, is take pleasure in. He finds pleasure in his weakness, in his suffering, because he tastes of Jesus more deeply and more powerfully. These are the kinds of things that we can only learn through meditating deeply upon God's promises and experiencing them by ourselves, because it just doesn't make sense. As we close, we remember that in all of this we have a suffering Savior. You see, we have a God who is not in the, just in the distant galaxies, hanging out in the stars, who is like, hey, life's going to be really bad for you guys on that earth. And you know what? 
good things are going to happen through the bad things that are happening. Just take my word for it. I'll see you on the other side. We have a God who stepped down from his throne and entered into humanity. And he didn't just come here to hang out. He didn't just come out here to experience like the great things of life on earth. A good slice of pizza or a roller coaster at an amusement park or one of the great sunsets he'd made. He, he came here and walked down this road ahead of us and said, I'm going to tell you that suffering leads to glory, that trials and heartache and grief leads to greater joy, and I'm going to show you how it's done. And he walked through incredible rejection, incredible hurt, and the agonies of the cross and bearing our sin, rising again from the dead victorious so that he could show us that the way up begins by going down, that the way to glory is through suffering. The great news of the gospel, as Tim Keller says, is that Jesus went into the furnace for you so that he can be in the furnace with you. We have a Savior who went and drank the cup of suffering and came out on the other side, as Philippians 3 tells us, and glorified and given a name that is above every name, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He, he received his glorious inheritance because he willingly suffered and he suffered in our place. His suffering gives meaning and purpose to ours. I want to close with this poem. came across it this week. I'd never read it before. I don't remember reading it before. It's by a minister in the Church of England, Edward Shalito, and he wrote this during World War I. The poem is called Jesus of the Scars. And he says, If we've never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is thy balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou drawest near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. These last four lines are powerful. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds but thou alone. We come before a God today who doesn't just say to you and me, deal with the trial, it'll all work out in the end. But he's gone before us and because of that he goes with us into the fire knowing that it is producing a glorious outcome 
that we can't even put into words. We probably can't even begin to understand and see this side of eternity. As God allows us into the fire, may we trust him that he's at work making us more like Jesus and creating the possibility of joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray. Our God, thank you that you can be trusted in the fire. Give us a deep-seated confidence that you're at work in a very real and poignant way, not just generally, but that you have something designed in the midst of trial, whether it's, whether it's suffering because of our faith, because we're standing for Jesus among family members or coworkers or others hostile to the gospel, or whether it's suffering that results just simply because there's sin in this world. May we truly believe not only are you making us more Christ-like, but you're increasing our capacity for joy. When we don't understand, help us to trust you. When we see others walking through these trials, may we come alongside and weep with them. God, I thank you that your word speaks to us right where we are and in the midst of the things that we, we face. God, we, we thank you that we have a Savior whose death on the cross and glorious resurrection had implications far beyond what we could ever imagine. We thank you we have a Savior who's gone before us and who's with us in the fire. In Jesus' name. I want to just, before I share with you this benediction, I just want to remind you that if you'd like to come forward to pray about anything or just linger here in the, in the sanctuary to spend some time in prayer by yourself or there'll be a few of us up front here that would love to pray for you, we want to just encourage you to not, God's speaking to your heart, don't just rush along to lunch, but take some time to linger with him and, and ask what he would have you do. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.